Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. There is an old tradition in some Japanese Zen temples, which is, if a wandering monk can win an argument about Buddhism with one of the resident monks, he can spend the night. And if he can't win the argument, he has to move on. Now, there was such a temple in northern Japan, and it was run by two brothers. The elder brother was very learned. Uh, he was a very studious type. And the younger brother was a little stupid, and he only had one eye. Now, uh, one evening, <coughs> a wandering monk came by, and he asked for lodging. And the elder brother was tired. He'd been studying hours, reading all these sutras and... So he told the younger brother to go and take the debate. And he said, but you must ask, in a request, that the dialogue be in silence. And after a while, the traveler came in to this elder brother, and he said, what a wonderful fellow your brother is. He has won the debate very cleverly, so I must move on. Thank you. Good night. Huh? Now, before you go, said this elder brother, would you please relate the dialogue to me? Hmm, well, said this traveler, first I held up one finger representing the Buddha. Hmm? Then your brother held up two fingers to represent the Buddha and his teaching, the Buddha and the Dharma. Hmm? So I held up three fingers representing the Buddha, his teaching, and his followers. Then your very clever brother shook his clenched fist in my face to indicate that all this came from one realization. And with that, the traveler left. And a little later, the younger brother came in, and he looked all upset, very distressed. And the elder brother said to him, well, I understand you won the debate. Won nothing, said the brother. The moment he saw me, he held up one finger, insulting me by indicating that I only had one eye. Hmm? 
but because he was a stranger, I thought I would be polite, and I held up two fingers congratulating him on having two eyes. So he held up three fingers to show me that between us we had three eyes, and that made me mad. So I got up, and I was going to punch him in the nose, you know. So he went, and the elder brother just laughed. See, we got duck soup. <laughs> and we have all had the experience of being in a debate, you know, and kind of an argument. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> And I think we have experienced enough of them to know that um, arguments and debates are mostly useless, and we could even say sometimes that they're stupid. Hmm? And now, um, most of us here, all of us here, anyway, here we are, <laughs> and we are interested in reality, you know, in the truth. Uh, we're interested in a truth that cannot be written. We are interested in an experiential <coughs> truth. Hmm? Now, if you spend a lot of time trying to convince someone else of the truth, you should know that your efforts are worthless because no one can reach the truth through a discussion. Hmm. You may get a nice shelter, a place to stay for the night, but that's all. And so has come about this tradition, you know, of one night's lodging. You've got a place to rest your mind for a little while. Only for a night. In the morning, you're supposed to move on. And it simply means, you know, that through reasoning, through argument, you cannot reach the goal of truth. You've only reached a place to stay for a moment. No matter how you figure things out in your mind, you have got a place to stay for the moment. We do not deceive ourselves that one night's shelter is the totality. Hmm? You have to move on. Now, there are a lot of people that have deceived themselves with this. They don't move. They hit on a point, and they sit there, and they sit there, and they sit there. Their reasoning you know, their logicalness, you know, has led them to a hypothetical conclusion. That's not truth. 
It hasn't led them to life. It has just simply led them to a little point. You're supposed to move from there again. Hmm? Mental conclusions do approximate. I mean, we know of people that, um, now I have a particular person in mind that um, was so clever and so close to being a mental genius, everybody thought he knew. But he didn't. But you know, it's like a forger. He can forge your signature so that it looks exactly like yours. But it doesn't mean he's you. So you can approximate, you can reach a conclusion, but it is not the goal, or whatever you want to call it. Huh? Now this story also points to the fact that most of these kinds of discussions, debates, are foolish. We waste a lot of time sometimes with them, but they're foolish. In, in the mood of argument and debate, how can you understand the other? You're whirling around so with yourself, there's no place that any understanding can come in. You've got to stop for a minute, you know. Whatever the other one says is just simply a jumping off point for you to attack again. Hmm? A mind that is bent on winning, on conquering, doesn't understand. When one is seeking only to be victorious, I came out of that the winner, you know, then there is this aggressiveness in that person, and you're not asking for truth, you're asking only for victory. So differentiate that in yourself, huh? And when you are holding out only for victory, you're sacrificing something of yourself. Because truth you will never get. When truth is your goal all the time, then you can very easily sacrifice the victory. It doesn't mean a thing. And truth should always be our goal. You know, not victory in the sense that you've overpowered someone with all your logic and your aggressiveness and, you know, your winning. You know. Seeking the truth is not supposed to be an ego trip. It's supposed to be just the opposite. Hmm? It is a not I, not you situation, but truth. Yeah. Because two people can argue and argue and argue and there's no meeting ground. When two lovers meet, they don't debate around, they communicate. Hmm. Yeah. And in the Eastern traditions, there is this emphasis on a trust, on faith. Hmm. There is a relationship of a faith between a teacher and a student. You may get very angry with the teacher, but there's still something in that relationship whereby you have a faith. 
if you're just sitting there arguing with your teacher, just to be arguing because you're going to win in a debate with that teacher. You bring about a, mm -hmm, a little gap in that relationship. The teacher has to wait for you to come back to your senses, in a manner of speaking, huh? So that when you come to a teacher or a teaching, you're supposed to come to try to understand, not to debate. You haven't come to win in that sense. You have come to win, but you have come to win over yourself and not somebody else. A real student is seeking to be defeated by the teacher. Hmm? And so we have the questions in the confrontation room, which can become very severe at times because there the situation arises finally where you must answer. And if the teacher appears argumentative, he's playing. Huh? But for a particular reason, sometimes the teacher looks as if he's very aggressive, you know, very stringent, you know, as if he is bent on defeating you. Watch yourself when this happens. You can watch that ego begin to whirl around and the confusion that sets in and the chaos that comes around. So that in that moment, if you're really watching, you can drop that ego right now. Why else does the teacher do something like that? To make you uncomfortable? That's silly, isn't it? Yeah. It's your opportunity. That's what you're being presented with. <clears throat> Once upon a time, it happened, a long time ago, there was a great prime minister of a very great king. This prime minister had been a very rare person, you know, very intelligent, cunning, shrewd, a great diplomat, and once in a while, even wise. Hmm? He died. It was going to be very difficult to replace him, hmm? to find a substitute for such a man. <clears throat> and the whole kingdom was searched. And the rest of the cabinet, all the rest of the ministers were sent out to see if they could find three people that they could bring back to the palace. And out of these three, they would be given a test and a new prime minister would be chosen. And so for months, the search went on, months. The kingdom was combed, every nook and cranny, as the saying, you know. And finally, three people were found. One was a great scientist, one was a great philosopher, 
and the other was a religious man. Now the scientist was a mathematician. He could solve any mathematical problem. The philosopher was a great systems maker. Out of nothing he could create. Out of words he could create beautiful systems. Watch yourself. <laughs> yeah. Philosophers can do this, you know, and we all do philosophize. Yeah. Which is great. Watch your fantasies. Philosophers do not have to have anything in their hands. Hmm? No objects, you know. They're great magicians. They can create a kind of a god, any kind, you name it. They'll create it for you, huh? They create theories of creation. <laughs> hmm? All kinds of things they create through the use of words. They join words together in such a way that it gives you a feeling of something substantial and worthwhile, useful. Hmm? And it's useful. Now, this third man was religious. He was a man of faith. He was a man of devotion. He was a man of meditation. And these three now represent the three pillars of consciousness. Science and philosophy, as Henry used to say, are the handmaidens of religion. But religion is first. Yep. So we have now a man of science, a man of philosophy, and a man of religion. Yep. Yeah. A man of science is concerned with experiments. Unless something is proven through an experiment, it just isn't proved, you know. He's empirical. He wants empirical facts, like Jack Webb used to. Yeah, give me the facts, man. Nothing but the facts. Hmm? Empirical facts. Experimental facts. Yeah. A man of philosophy is a man of logic. Experiment is, is not the question at all. Through logic, he proves or disproves, you know. He doesn't work in a laboratory. He works in his head, in his mind. Huh? And he can solve any riddle. Maybe right, maybe wrong, but he can solve any riddle. So he can create any type of riddle in his head. Now, the religious dimension, hmm, this man or this state of consciousness, doesn't look at life as a problem as does the man of science or the man of philosophy. Hmm? It is just nothing that you're supposed to solve like a problem. Life is to be lived, hmm? to be experienced. Just as you experience truth. So the man of experience, the man of experience, Experiment and the thinking man. 
Solutions to problems come through experience. Even in our logic, in our reasoning, we rely on past experience to solve our problems now. When we know we're going to be faced with something mentally beforehand, you know, we can decide what we're going to say, what we're going to do, how we're going to act, and we've got it all figured out in our heads so logically. And then we meet life face to face. Hmm. And all that I planned and had so set in my mind doesn't apply at all. You know, somebody once said, I thought I had solved so many problems that I knew all the tricks. But always life comes up with a new one. Life comes up with a new one. Yeah? Experiments we do objectively with objects, huh? And we are usually very detached. You know, feel the cards, you know, whatever. Objects. But life isn't an object. Hmm? When you're experimenting with something, it's objective. It's here in front of you. But when you live, it is occurring within you. I mean, it is subjective. Now, unless you are one with life, how can you know life? If life is in here and you're out here, how can you know? Hmm? You can't know life from the outside. You've got to be with it. Anyway, the, the ministers searched and searched and searched, and they found these three men and brought them to the palace. And the king said to them when they arrived, for three days now, you will rest and get ready. And on the morning of the fourth day, <clears throat> the examination will be held. And one of you will be chosen, and he will become the prime minister. <clears throat> so they all retired and started working in their own ways. Three days were not enough. You know, the scientist had to think of all kinds of experiments and work them out. I mean, who knew what kind of an examination this was going to be? So he couldn't sleep. You know, there was no time. He had the rest of his life in which to sleep after he had become the prime minister. Hmm? So, who's going to bother to sleep now? No, experiment! And the philosopher began to think of many problems all to be solved. See, who knows what type of problem is going to be presented? And he whirled around in his mind with all kinds that he knew of. The religious man, he was just at ease. He ate, and he ate well. And he could do this because his eating was sacred. He slept, and he slept well. He would sit outside 
and he would go for a walk and he would look at the trees and be thankful. <coughs> Excuse me. He sat in meditation and he relaxed. Every moment of life is an examination. Every moment of life. <coughs> How can one prepare? <coughs> Here we go again, folks. <coughs> Excuse me. If something is right here, right now, directly in front of you, like your nose, right here, right now, how are you going to prepare? You know the little corn? Students, there is a true man of no rank leaving and entering the gates of your face. Look, look, what is this true man? How are you going to prepare for that? Hmm? How are you going to recognize that true man? Hmm? You just simply have to face it, don't you? Hmm? And you face it directly. How do you face yourself directly? Anyway, this scientist would admonish the religious man. What are you doing? You're wasting time. You're eating and you're sleeping and you're meditating. You can do that after a while, you know? And the religious man just didn't argue with him. He wasn't a man of argument. And the philosopher would, the philosopher would say, you go on sleeping, you sit outside in the sun, and you're putzing around in the garden, and you go looking at the trees. What help is that, you know? Examination is not child's play. You have to be ready for it. So, and the religious man just laughed because he believed in laughter. And on the morning of the fourth day, they started for the palace. This final moment had arrived. <clears throat> the scientist was hardly in any position to walk even. He was so tired from no sleep and all these experiments. And the philosopher wasn't quite so tired, but he was very unsure of himself. He was very uncertain. He had thought and thought and thought and thought and argued and argued, and he was just in a mess. He was so muddled up. And the religious man was walking along very happily and singing and, you know, and thusly did they arrive. <clears throat> now the king had made, 
had had made this very special device. And they were taken into a room where he had fit, fitted a lock in the form of a puzzle on the door. There were many figures on this lock, but no key. And the figures on the lock had to be set in a particular way. And they had to match in a certain way. And then the door would open. And the king looked at him and he said, the first person to come out of the room will be the prime minister. So now begin. Figure it out. Commence. Start. Already yet. Let's go. <laughs> and he left. Did he say all that? <laughs> no. The scientist, he took his pen and his paper and he observed the figures on the lock. There was no time to lose. You know. The philosopher closed his eyes and thought of all the mathematical terms that he knew. What to do with these figures? What to do with these figures? <clears throat> and they both happened to look over at the religious man. What would he do about this situation? You know? And he sat in a corner with his eyes closed. Hmm? So they both thought simultaneously, well, it's just between the two of us. He's out of it. Hmm? And they bent to it with a will. And suddenly, in all this quiet, they became aware of something. The religious man wasn't there. He'd left the room. Huh? The door was open. And later, they asked him how he had solved the problem. And he said it was very simple. I meditated on it, and all of a sudden I knew the door wasn't locked. The door is open. The door is always open. Your door is always open. Hmm? It has never, ever been locked. without any ready-made answers. You can't go with a ready-made answer. Without any ready-made answer, just push the door and go on in. Hmm? If you're trying to solve the problem, you're going to miss. It's a mystery. The problem can be solved. But not with soup of the soup of the soup of the soup of the soup. Hmm? It is a very deep mystery. It's a mystery to trust. It's a mystery to have faith in. It is a mystery to allow yourself to enter. And no debate helps. And no argument helps. You just move with life. Just move. Hmm? But we don't. 
we hide. We want to go in by some other route, and we keep thinking there's got to be an easier way. There must be an easier way. <clears throat> there's got to be an easier way than facing myself. I would like to know some kind of a word like abacadabra. There must be such a word that can be used that will open the door. There must be. We spend so much time looking for this magical word, you know, that we miss. You know, it's kind of like this poor little monk that we use as a whipping boy. He went to the doctor one day. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, prescriptions and things that the doctors write down are, used to be. I don't, do they still write them out in Latin? Latin, Greek. Also, they all write in such a way that if they had to read it again, they couldn't. <laughs> I've often wondered what the pharmacists really, how they make out any, but we must all be getting the wrong medicine. <laughs> huh? So this monk is telling the doctor, listen, just be plain. Just be simple. Just tell me the facts. Don't use Latin. Don't use Greek. Just plain. Very well, said the doctor, if you insist, and if you will allow me to be frank, you're not ill at all. You're just plain lazy. Okay, said the monk, thank you. Now I'll write it in Latin and write it in Greek so I can show it to my family. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think that's not what we do with ourselves? Now, this temple run by the two brothers, the elder very learned and the younger rather stupid and having only one eye. Well, we know that a stupid person is rather one-pointed. He's very sure of himself. He doesn't have to debate with himself, he debates with others. He's sure of himself. Hmm? A, a person that we say is learned whatever learned. He's more dual. He hesitates. He, he kind of divides himself, you know. He, are, he can argue with himself. He doesn't have to argue with anybody else. He argues with himself. And he can see both sides. So he winds up in a kind of a dilemma. But uh, a stupid person, you know, he looks content. You know, they, sometimes you get a fool, you know, they look like a saint like a child. <clears throat> However, let us say, if we can, that the, the fool is on the first rung of the ladder and the saint is on the last rung of the ladder, you know, and there's all these rungs in between. The fool doesn't know. He's simple and he's one-eyed, you know. He's sees only that one point. The saint knows, that's why he's simple. But he has awakened another way of seeing. You know. 
both have a kind of a unity. But mm, what a difference, huh? Ignorance has an innocence, just as wisdom has an innocence. And the learned person is flitting back and forth in between. He's ignorant and he thinks he's wise. The ignorant man hasn't started on the journey and the wise man has attained. So what's the difference between the two? You know, the old question, what's the difference between a student and a teacher? <clears throat> the learned person is in between seeking shelter someplace even for one night. He's looking for the rung on the ladder for one night. Just let me sit here and rest for a minute because he's not at home. So this stranger comes looking for lodging and he debates with this one-eyed monk. They're both silent and they debate with gestures. Can you debate with gestures? Now, a gesture can be very alive, and it should be. When you move your hand, your whole being should move with it. Huh? When you look with your eyes, the true man should come forth. When you walk, you should walk as a whole man. Your legs can't walk by themselves, no. But your head, it can go spinning off in all kinds of directions, huh? Um, your head is sort of autonomous. What about the rest? You know, the only time it cares about the rest of your body is when it's in pain or hungry or some dumb thing, huh? So if you want to study a person, don't listen to what he says. Look at how he acts. How he walks into a room, see? how he sits, how he walks outside, how he looks at a thing, how he gestures. These do not deceive. Words deceive. <coughs> so this stranger tells the elder brother, you know, first I held up one finger to represent the Buddha. Your brother held up two fingers to represent the Buddha and his teaching, which is the Dharma. Uh, so I held up three fingers to represent the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the followers. See, this, this stranger, you know, he's linking up his gestures to represent his state of mind, of what he's looking for. Just as the younger brother made his gesture and linked them up to what he was thinking, yeah, with his state of mind, and there was no communication between the two at all. The younger brother was feeling very rejected by this wordless debate, mm -hmm. and so he was distressed. The stranger, this wandering monk, had his mind on these what are called the three jewels 
I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Hmm? <clears throat> now, a person, <clears throat> given one, starting out to look for a way to improve himself or herself, or who simply wants to know, simply wants to know what life is about, and really has a desire to know what life is, or one who feels that there must be a way somehow or another to establish a communion between the human mind and what we call divine mind, or between normal human consciousness and supra-consciousness. Now, not super-consciousness. Super is great, bigger. Hmm? Supra is that which is over and above it, which transcends it. So we have human consciousness and supra-consciousness, that which transcends our human consciousness. Huh? Yeah. And in this supra-consciousness is, is that in which man attains an understanding of himself and life. Other than that, we're just going around and around in our chaos. Hmm? It is this way that he comes face to face with divine wisdom. Now, if he's going to start out, I think it's rather essential that he have faith that there is something to attain, that there is this supraconsciousness, huh? And there must be a way, there is a method, there is a something by which I can cognize that supraconsciousness. Hmm? Whatever it may be, there must be a way that I will know it when I see it. And I have a faith that I have this in me. Yeah? There is something that is greater than me. Surely I can recognize it. I am not that great. Hmm? There is something greater than me. Without faith, what is there to attain? What without, you know, you have a faith that something exists. Without this faith, what is there to attain? What is, what is the reason for the seeking if you don't have a faith that there is something? Hmm? Now, to proclaim this faith and to have confidence that it's there, the beginner repeats these refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in the Sangha. <clears throat> now, to take refuge, of course, is to take a shelter. Yeah. David, the psalmist, he puts it this way. He is my refuge and my fortress. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust, and his truth shall be thy shield. Yeah? To take refuge is to retreat inwardly to the very core of you. You know, when we bow going into the confrontation room, 
the three bowels, one for each of the refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. Now, in the beginning, as a student begins, you know, Buddha might mean to him the man Gautama, Siddhartha, hmm? the Buddha. Dharma would mean then the teachings, you know, uh, might mean the literal words, and the Sangha might mean the community with which he is associated, or if he is in, in Buddhism, actually, it would mean a community of monks or nuns. Hmm? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when a one begins to repeat these words and to bow, I take refuge and means it, even at the very beginning, where they're literal about it. Taking refuge actually changes the course of our personal history, changes our lives. Hmm? It is one of the few sensible things that we do. This inward moving, inward movement toward enlightenment or toward awakening. Through correct meditation and correct observation, one comes to know the knower. And uh, we go through various stages until finally before us there is this task. This task is presented. This task of consciousness transference. Then these refuges, still making the bows in humbleness, you know, in humbleness I take refuge, not the man Buddha, but the essence of the whole. Dharma, no longer literal words, the teaching as such, but the teaching of the pure wisdom of the heart, which is now called law. And the Sangha, one time a group of followers, but also the universe in its interpenetration and its interdependency it's unity. The unity of the whole is the Sangha. You can take a refuge in that and live in it. Man, have you got it made? Hmm? <clears throat> now, as a little side issue, from the beginning, the beginning bow of I take refuge, hmm, all the way through until the consciousness transference, we find three so-called secret doctrines. Here comes your magical word, abacadabra. Right. We have first the exoteric teaching, the outer teaching. We have the esoteric or inner teaching. And then there is a transcendental or non-dualistic, non-exoteric, non-esoteric aspects. The teaching of the Hinayana sect <clears throat> represents the outer teaching. The Mahayana, the esoteric or the inner teaching. 
and the doctrine of the void, the shunyata, Nagarjuna's way, huh, represents the teaching of the pranya paramita. You know, ahanya paramita shingyo. That's the third way. That's why this sometimes is so difficult. We don't linger with the first. We don't linger with the second. It's the third. That's what's important. This consciousness transference. That's important. I don't care how many tricks you learn. You still are going to be confronted with this eventually, if you want to know what's true. And then the Bodhisattva adds, we shall so act as to lead every living creature of the four kinds of birth to the attainment of the highest path. That's the Bodhisattva vow, huh? <clears throat> the four births. There is birth by egg. There is birth by heat and moisture, seeds in the ground. Huh? There is birth by womb. And then there is the supranormal birth. Which is transference of consciousness, and it's called in Christianity the birth of the Christ. Hmm? Also, could be called the resurrection of the Christ. So, we do this little thing, the Bodhisattva vow, quite frequently. Shuyu Muhen Segando, you recognize it? I vow to save all sentient beings. Hmm. Maybe we ought to add, before we do that, we ought to add again these three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in the Sangha seeing it from a point of view of consciousness transference. Okay? <clears throat> and now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.